Hello, everyone. Before we get into today's really interesting interview with Philip Goldberg, who's the author of American Veda, I just wanted to remind you, if you haven't done so already, to make sure you've subscribed to our growing community of seekers by texting the word EMBODY, E-M-B-O-D-Y, to the number 44222. So each week we send out our newest and most popular content from our audio, video, and written offerings. And we also offer opportunities to our subscribers that we don't publish at all on the website. It doesn't cost anything. You just have to text the word EMBODY, E-M-B-O-D-Y, to the number 44222. There's a lot of exciting things coming up for Embodied Philosophy, including a video recording of the recent abuse of power in the yoga community panel that took place in New York City in May. And we also have some upcoming workshops, online workshops, trainings, and courses. So I just want to make sure you don't miss out on any of that. So again, you can text Embody to 44222. All right, let's get to the interview with Philip Goldberg. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Philip Goldberg. Philip Goldberg is the author and co-author of numerous books, most popularly American Veda. He's a public speaker and workshop leader, a meditation teacher, and ordained interfaith minister. He lives in Los Angeles and blogs regularly on Huffington Post and spirituality and health. He's also the co-host of the podcast Spirit Matters, which I myself have listened to on several occasions, and it is a great resource for the audience, uh, our own audience, as it investigates the philosophy and the spirituality of the wider yoga and wisdom traditions. So with that, thank you so much, Philip, for joining us. Very good to be with you. So, Philip... I'm very excited for this interview because I myself have read and really read with a lot of passion your book, American Veda. It introduced to me a lot of the history of how uh, Indian thought has come to the West, a lot of which was very new for me. So I would love for you just first, before we get into the topic of that book and the material that you covered in uh, that particular work, I would love to hear a little bit about your life and what has sort of led you to this deep investigation of this tradition? Well, I was a child of the 60s and all that entails. Right. Uh, And when I was a college student uh, and was uh, trying to do my best to end the Vietnam War and promote civil rights and doing all those politically active things, um, I was essentially uh, internally also searching for answers to the bigger questions of life. Uh, Who am I? What am I doing here? How do you get happy? Mm -hmm. How do you become fulfilled? How do we relate to the rest of the world and the cosmos? And I wasn't getting very satisfactory answers uh, from any of the sort of uh, mainstream or grown-up sources which made me very much like, uh, you know, uh, many, many other people of my generation uh, who turned to the counterculture Mm -hmm. uh, for those answers. And and somehow, uh, in the mix of books and uh, people and um, drugs and drug experiences and all the rest, uh, the, the teachings from the East... Uh, gained uh, more and more prominence in our conversations and in our 
uh, reading material and so forth. Of course, this is long before there was an internet or mm -hmm. any any other easy sources of information. And and something just really resonated in me uh, with the teachings that we we call Hinduism and Buddhism, also Taoism, and just the, the Asian spiritual teachings. Um, resonated with me deeply. I had no religious background. I was raised by uh, secular atheist type of people, and and um, I thought religion was the opium of the masses, like as as Marx put it. And um, and but then these teachings came along, and I didn't. Uh, I said, well, there must be a different. Um, a different angle on what we think of as religion, because these, this doesn't seem superstitious or uh, belief-oriented, and nobody's asking me to pledge allegiance to anything. These just seem like very pragmatic, practical teachings. Um, philosophically and practically, they made a lot of sense to me. They, they, they were called mystical, but they seemed more rational than uh, either Western religion or even uh, psychology, which was I was majoring in, which, mm -hmm. you know, Freud seemed mystical and mysterious compared to these teachings. So I just, uh, they resonated with me and my own inner experience and my own hunches and uh, people I respected, uh, grown-ups, you know, people like Aldous Huxley and others, and Alan Watts were uh, promoting them, and and I just voraciously uh, wanted to know more and more and more and more, and that eventually led because I'm a practical guy, and I saw that in these teachings, they were all pointing to uh, that, uh, not to belief, but to inner experience and transformative inner spiritual practices, predominantly meditation. And so I took up uh, transcendental meditation not long after the Beatles did, mm. and famously. Mm. And, um, and then I, um, I took to that very well and got deeper and deeper into it and eventually became a teacher of it and spent much of the 70s doing that. And the rest, you know, is just an expansion of that until, you know, I became a professional writer and I was working on books and all that. And at one point I said, boy, you know, these, uh, the importation of these teachings from the East into American life is, is spreading so uh, broadly across the landscape. It's not just me and my ex hippie friends it's it's you know psychology and medical care and uh boardrooms and uh, all kinds of interesting places and eventually and then of course the yoga boom and uh, happened and i uh, the time was right to chronicle it as a matter of history and i think a very significant and important piece of American history is, is this uh, meeting of East and West in, in the uh, spiritual landscape and how it's um, affected uh, the culture. So uh, that all came together 
uh, and the editor at uh, Random House agreed with me, and uh, I wrote the book. So there it is. And That's ex- the short version. And an excellent book it is, for sure. Thank you. Yes. And uh, and before we get into the conversation about how, as you're touching upon, how um, this meeting of East and West really shifted the dynamic in this country, I, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. But before we get there, I'm, I'm interested, you know, you bring up the point of being a, a child of the 60s and... And of course, many of the foremost teachers today, you know, teaching yoga philosophy or teaching on Indian traditions are, are, were captivated and mobilized by this countercultural movement in the 60s. But now it seems that there's a spirit, the spirit of the seeker has changed a bit in the sense that it seems like one can be a, a, a student of this kind of thought without necessarily being countercultural or sure. Um, and so I guess I would love to hear what you've observed about kind of the spirit of the seeker in, in relation to what you experienced in the sixties versus what we're kind of looking at today. Yeah. Well, what's interesting. Um, we think of the sixties and this, we, <laughs> when we talk about the sixties, we're really pretty much talking about, the mid to late 60s into the 70s. Right. Because the early 60s was Mad Men. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then it started to shift in the mid 60s and peaked in 68 and then went through into the mid 70s. So, you know, and we think of that as, you know, the Woodstock generation and hippies and counterculture and nonconformity. But there was a lot of other things going on and a whole lot of people who were not part of that. Mm-hmm. And many of them were drawn to it, too. I remember sometime around 1970 getting really deeply into meditation and hanging out with people. And it shocked me when I would see somebody, you know, looking very straight and voting Republican. Because mm. and, and I started to realize even then, oh, these teachings appeal to a lot of people. And and the uh, lifestyle stuff is only, uh, you know, a superficial thing. And when you look at the history, as I did, the 60s were the anomaly. Mm-hmm. Uh, people can be very unconventional in their, uh, you know, mental and spiritual outlook and on the surface appear very conventional and normal. And, and and a lot of those kind of people, people, you know, who on the surface were just ord- ordinary Americans, you know, that's who was also drawn to these teachings. And, uh, you know, just the explosion of the 60s and 70s gave it this countercultural air. So one can be sort of countercultural on the inside and unconventional and, and seek in, in unusual ways. Uh, and it might have nothing to do with who they hang out with or the, the clothing they wear or the, the occupations they pursue. And, 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 but the larger issue you're raising is very true. This, the explosion of interest in Indian spirituality and yoga that really took off in the 70s uh, and late 60s and 70s, and as we'll see when we get back to American Veda, goes back you know, to 200 years, uh, slowly building up. But the explosion of it back then um, led to a mainstreaming Mm -hmm. of these ideas and teachings. So by the mid to late 70s, it wasn't just 
you know, the youth counterculture that was taking to meditation and yoga. It was their parents. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it started to seep into uh, the medical community. So, and, and that started back in the 70s. And now, you know, your, your doctor will tell you to meditate and do yoga for stress reduction. And, you know, uh, you see it on television and, you know, all Oprah's audience and Dr. Oz's audience, they're, they, you know, they're being told, you know, these practices are good for them. And, and, and so part of what happened in the 60s was to th thrust this into the spotlight, and that caught the attention of people in the mainstream, and then the teachings got adapted to all kinds of places. I mean, look at the yoga world now. You have counterculture type of spiritual seekers, mm -hmm. you know, in the same yoga room or the same yoga festival as you might a stockbroker who's on vacation. Right. And, and you know, so that just speaks to me of the mainstreaming of, of these teachings. Yes. So... One thing that came up while you were while you were speaking, and, and I'm thinking about the popularity of yoga. I mean, I, there's definitely, obviously, in in certain communities, a retaining of the of the the philosophy of the tradition. But it seems like oftentimes the practices themselves are not necessarily being couched in in the service of a kind of enlightenment or a, a for a kind of a certain kind of liberation that is often spoken about in the text but is rather sort of a, a, a new uh, a more holistic approach to stress relief yeah. so um do you think it's yes <laughs> yes and it is you but do correct. you think it's problematic that there is an kind of an anesthetizing of the tradition in this way and and we're we're losing the the or we're we're trying to kind of sidestep around the stuff that's a little harder which is kind of the real spiritual the real spiritual well, work? Well, you're bringing up a really interesting and important question, and it's uh, and there's a lot of passion around it, mm -hmm. and um, and a lot of argument about it, which I think is tremendously help healthy. Yeah. And and you know, as somebody who has looked at this extensively, you know, as a as a historical development. Um, and is in touch with people on all ends of the spectrum um, because of my research. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a, a, a more nuanced view of it, and, and I think it's necessary to have a nuanced view because on the one hand, yes, it's problematic, um, and it's a deep concern to many of us, including me, that the word yoga has coming is coming to and has come to mean uh, or be synonymous with uh, physical exercises right um, so people say when you know people think of yoga or many people they think of yoga they think of uh, yoga asanas mm -hmm. the, the postures and and um, exercises of you know mainly stretching and bending um, some of which are very traditional and some of which are sort of modern uh, inventions, and um, that's a kind of reduction of the fullness of yoga mm -hmm. um, that is not just philosophical, as you suggest, uh, 
uh, it is also um, a matter of the transformation of consciousness, mm -hmm. which has always been what yoga is really about. The word, as you know, means union, mm -hmm. essentially. And, and as I like to say, it doesn't just mean the union of the head to the knee. It means, <laughs> it means the union of the individual self, consciousness, uh, individual personality with the, the cosmic consciousness, the universal self, known in, in the East as Brahman, what some people might call God, what some people might just call you know, the universal intelligence or energy, uh, depending on your perspective. But the union of, of the individual consciousness with something bigger and what we think of as spiritual. And that's always been the essence of what yoga points to and aims at. And, and the physical exercises called asanas were done uh, mainly in, in the traditional context as a sort of uh, prelude to deep meditation. They, they're, uh, they aid the, the system in settling into deep meditation. So the, 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 the traditional set of practices, the traditional sadhana, uh, might include asanas and pranayama breathing exercises and then uh, deep meditation. Mm -hmm. And that's been um, diluted in this emphasis on yoga as a fitness practice, and that's good for your health and your uh, your physical appearance and your well-being, and it is all that, and it's mm -hmm. tremendously valuable. Uh, and so, but the 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 downside is it becomes seen as only that. Yes, and that's problematic. On the other hand, there's always an on the other hand. <laughs> they're very complicated. Um, many people are come to yoga because of those reasons. They want better health. They want to feel better. They want to look better. They want to, you know, cure their back pain or their arthritis or whatever it is. And that is a legitimate entry point if that's their concern. And all the great yoga teachers, all the great gurus and swamis who have came, come here, um, they know, they knew, and they taught their devotees to speak to people on the level of their own interests and concerns. Mm -hmm. So if somebody, I mean, back even back in the day when meditation was in the forefront, back in, you know, late 60s and 70s when I got into this stuff, asanas, you know, was a small part of it. It was mostly about meditation. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, you know, as soon as studies were done on the effects of meditation, people flocked to it because they're they found that it would help lower their blood pressure or diminish their anxiety or help them, you know, uh, get over depression without debilitating drugs. So the entry point could be on that level of health and well-being. And then what often happens, while for many people, that's it, that's enough, and they're ha that's content with that, and they don't go any further. But for some people... They might come to a yoga class for that kind of physical benefit and discover there's something more to it, either because of something the teacher says or some inner experience. And they say, whoa, you know, I, I didn't expect this inner feeling of peace 
or tranquility. I didn't expect my consciousness to feel different. Mm -hmm. um, what's going on here? Maybe I'll buy a book. Maybe I'll go to the advanced class. So if we don't want to denigrate that motivation because it's often the doorway into yoga in the deeper and, and bigger sense of the word. And, and that's, you know, something everybody should keep in mind. You know, some of the most experienced yoga teachers and the most deeply spiritual yoga teachers first turned to yoga because they had back pain or, you know, something like that. So we should not denigrate that motivation too much. But there is, at the same time, the problem of making sure people know there's more to it. Yeah, I think that's really important what you said, and 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 I've I've actually said in a, in in another podcast when we were talking about a similar issue that uh, you know I myself actually came to yoga through a gym, very physical setting, and and now I'm creating a a, a web platform for yoga philosophy. So you yeah. know, and and for a long time I couldn't really even stomach hearing anything that even remotely broached upon. Um, God, which sometimes, you know, in some classes I would hear because I had, I had been so, um, shaped by a certain Judeo-Christian upbringing that I had, uh, that I had rejected, um, when I had started my yoga practice. So it took a long time for those teachings to kind of start to settle in and for me to actually have an ear for them. Um, so it does, you're absolutely right. It does happen in that way for so many people, especially given that America is such a, um, physical culture, physical fitness culture. So, yeah. and, um, and if I may add, people yes. are, people are under a lot of stress yeah. and, and they, and they want relief from that stress. They, you know, they want relief from the anxiety and the depression or whatever it is. And that's their immediate concern, or they have a physical ailment of some kind, often stress related. And now people will hear that yoga is good for those things. And they'll, that's their initial entry point. And but you know things happen, things and happen. many you know they may then realize there's more to it and become uh, interested in the rest of the package of what yoga really is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a, this is a great segue into now uh, a discussion of of American Veda, your book, and because we're talking about entry point, it's interesting that you know this wasn't always the entry point, and when <laughs> these teachings actually entered uh, America, it was in a very different form. It was mainly a philosophical um, form, and so and one thing that is re is really interesting and was new to me in your book or. Uh, or, or at least um, the the teaching of yoga, or teaching of the entrance of these teachings into the American landscape, uh, I'd never seen um, starting in this place. Was your mentioning of Thoreau and Emerson specifically, and I, I believe another figure which you can share, and I thought that was very interesting because usually um, in historical um, mentions of when yoga arrived. If, if it's not the physical teachers like Iyengar and Patabi Joyce and Krishnamacharya, it's Vivekananda. But actually, mm -hmm. in your book, you discuss the entrance as being a bit earlier. So I would love for you to just kind yep. of start that story for us. Yeah. Um, the teachings really started to come into uh, America, into New England, for the most part, um, by way of books, mm. it was in the early 19th century and late, even, you know, late 
in the early in the previous century, but uh, in the early uh, 1800s, traders and uh, people going to India and other parts of the Orient would get interested and maybe bring back books. But what what started to happen in the early 19th century was um, some of the better uh, translations and commentaries about what was then called, you know, what we think of as Hinduism and Buddhism, were coming to us through Europe uh, by uh, some German uh, writers and translators and philosophers, but mostly the Brits, who, you know, were governing India at that time, mm -hmm. occupying India. Mm -hmm. And um, the irony is that a lot of the uh, scholars were writing about um, Indian philosophy and Hindu tradition uh, in a way that was meant to serve the missionary efforts and the colonial efforts. Um, and uh, But some of them, some of those scholars began to see that there's great uh, wisdom and value in some of these teachings, and the translations and commentaries became more honest and more um, accurate. And they started to filter in uh, from—they they affected the English uh, poets and romantic philosophers and idealists, and then those books came to America. And, then, and, and the early adopters were uh, the sort of intellectual elite of, of Boston and, uh, you know, that area, um, one of whom was Ralph Waldo Emerson's father. Who was a minister, and so they, he, he, and other contemporaries had study circles, and they published journals, and they were in communication with some of the intellectual elite of India, and um, that's how it grew. So Emerson, the Emerson we know, grew up uh, with those books and people talking about this stuff, and by the time he was in Harvard. As a student, he was pretty uh, deeply immersed in it. He had uh, there are a lot of other influences going on, but uh, so he Emerson's philosophy, which is a, we think of as the really the first homegrown American philosopher, and his influence is incalculable on, on American literature and American uh, thinking and philosophy, and he was deeply influenced by uh, Hindu and Buddhist thought. And uh, you could see it in his work, and I chronicle it in American Veda. And um, he, in turn, um, influenced uh, Henry David Thoreau. So when Thoreau famously was at Walden Pond for that long sojourn that he wrote about in Walden, which mm -hmm. you know most high school and college students read at one point, mm -hmm. um, he, he was reading the Bhagavad Gita every morning. And he, he had borrowed that book from Emerson, and he was reading it. And, he, and in, so in Walden and his other writings, he's just singing the praises of the Vedic teachings and uh, the, especially the Bhagavad Gita. And, and, and it, interestingly, in, the, in Walden, he calls himself a yogi. Mm. Now, as I like to point out in my talks, uh, there were no yoga studios. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in Walden Pond, near Walden Pond or Concord, Massachusetts at that time, 
Although, you know, now there's probably a hundred of them in Concord and right, right. Cambridge is 13 miles away. And, you know, so that whole area is probably inundated with meditation classes and yoga studios. But then it was just books mm. and people like Emerson and Thoreau and later Walt Whitman and other, the other transcendentalists, uh, they were deeply immersed in it. And it, effect, it wasn't their only influence. They were also influenced by certain Western philosophers and their own incredible insights. Um, but it informed their, their philosophy and their writing in a very deep and profound way. Um, so that's, that's, it goes back that far. So mm -hmm. people reading Emerson and Thoreau to this day in college or high school, um, they're getting a taste of Indian philosophy, whether they realize it or not. So what would you say was sort of the essence of what they found in those texts that they could not find within kind of the literature of the West at that time? Like what was so inspiring? Or to the them? religion of the West. Right. Because Emerson was a minister. Emerson went to Harvard Divinity School mm -hmm. and, you know, became a minister and then gave it up. He, as he put it, he defrocked himself. <laughs> he just walked away from the conventional ministry and gave a very famous address to the graduates of Harvard Divinity School where he essentially said, um, your people don't need you to preach to them. You know, they need you to give them a direct experience of divinity wow. and of the the divinity within themselves. Mm. And that notion of that we are divine beings, mm. that the core of our identity is not uh, that we're depraved, and, you know, sinners, but that we are divine beings. Mm. Uh, we are spiritual beings and that our essence is the same as the essence of the cosmos or the universe or, or God, as Emerson might have put it. And, um, and that is, you know, core teaching of, uh, from the Vedas, you know, thousands of years ago. It's the core essence of yoga, the essence of Vedanta philosophy, also the essence of Buddhism, if you uh, look at it from the, uh, the right angle. And they, they had, I think, Emerson and Thoreau, people like that, had that direct experience of that when they were in the woods and they were writing about it. And some of the scholars believe that the, the teachings of India uh, helped them understand it. And, and that essential um, turn from religion or spirituality as something that is about belief and tradition and the person of Jesus, because there was, you know, all Christians at that time, um, to one, an, a, an approach to spirituality that recognized that our own divine essence and that the whole purpose of religion was to uh, turn you within so you could experience and unfold that in your life mm -hmm. and realize your, your own divinity, your own divine nature, and the practical consequences of that in terms of happiness and fulfillment of, as, of a human life. That's what the essence of, of Indian spirituality is. And people like Emerson would have seen that that had been lost in the Judeo-Christian world and it was time to revive, revive it. Mm. Mm. 
So interesting. So now moving forward to Vivekananda, which isn't too much later in history, Vivekananda, uh, as as we mentioned, was um, is often considered, you know, by some historical accounts, like the beginning of you know yoga in America. Um, But you go to some lengths in the book to uh, to express that what Vivekananda offered us was not necessarily representative of India as a whole, but rather it was representative of a very particular stream. And so and so, I would love for you to just kind of explore that with us yeah let us know what that well let's let's put him in a context i call vivekananda the jackie robinson of american data (laughs) because he he was the first swami the first guru to come here and have an impact at a time 1893 when most americans had never even met a jew and many had never met a Catholic, let alone a Hindu. And, you know, a dark-skinned Hindu in orange robes. You know, this was pretty bizarre, yeah. yes. Um, and uh, so he came in, the 18, in 1893 uh, with the express purpose of appearing at the World's Parliament of Religion in Chicago. It was part of a big World's Fair. And representatives of the world's religions were invited, but it was, you know, predominantly, overwhelmingly, uh, a Protestant thing because we were a Protestant country. And to everybody's shock and surprise, uh, uh, Vivekananda stole the show. <laughs> he, um, you know, certainly people whose agenda was to prove that Christianity was this, you know, the supreme. Uh, religious tradition were not prepared for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just as white supremacists were not prepared for Jackie Robinson <laughs> <laughs> to, you know, prove that black people could play baseball better than you know, average guy. Um, so Vivekananda showed up, and uh, he was so magnetic, and his uh, eloquence was so profound. Uh, and his demeanor of ecumenical uh, love for, you know, all the religions and respect was, was great. And what he was expressing was the essence of Vedanta philosophy, and that w- appealed to a great many people. So he became the star of the show, and they had, a book, you know, they had to schedule extra lectures for him, and he got a lot of newspaper coverage. He also got attacked predictably by, you know, especially by conservative Christians who just thought he was a, you know, a a heathen who should be sent back to India for preaching false religion. And and so, you know, there's always been that kind of dichotomy in American life. But to get to your point, India at the time, under, you know, severe um, occupation by the British Empire— uh, and pre- previous to that, occupation and, and domination by uh, the, the Muslim uh, in, invaders from the Middle East or adjacent countries in, in, uh, in Asia, um, the, the, there was a spirit alive in India at the end of the 19th century of 
wanting to, it was the beginning of the freedom movement, the independence movement, but it was also a spiritual revival of wanting to uh, bring Hinduism into the modern era. Hmm. Um, and a lot of a lot of the traditional teachings, a lot of what we think of as yoga philosophy and and the Upanishad the teachings of the Upanishads and the high this great philosophy that attracted people like Emerson um, had been lost, uh, and uh, everyday Hinduism had become just sort of routine and ritualized and superstitious. So there was a, a push by uh, well-educated uh, Indians to um, reform Hinduism, and Vivekananda was part of that. Mm -hmm. And um, so he was also very conscious. Uh, after his speeches at, at the um, parliament, he— he had become so well-known that he decided to stay, and they booked him on a lecture tour, and he, he ended up staying and establishing the first uh, teaching organizations for the uh, propagation of uh, Hindu-like ideas or Indian philosophical ideas. They were called Vedanta societies, and they still exist in most cities, and for a long time, that was the only game in town for people interested in these ideas. Um, but in so doing, he was smart enough to—he didn't import everyday Hinduism uh, with all the uh, symbols that the people are now familiar with. You know, now we see the statues and images of Ganesha and Kali and Lakshmi and all these uh, forms of— in the in deities, and many of us, you know, understand them in a certain way and, and find them appealing and attractive. But it would have looked like just crazy idol worship to Americans back in, in the 19th century, and he knew that. And so what he emphasized was the philosophy of Vedanta, which is essentially, uh, if I can get a little esoteric— Go for it. Vedanta means— uh, the end of the Vedas, Veda Anta, the end of the Veda. And, and it, it usually means either a period, a, a chronological period where sort of the—what scholars think of as the, the end of the Vedic era, but it also means a sort of culmination of the Vedic teachings, which had evolved from ancient days and uh, were sort of encapsulated into the teachings in the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita. Mm. And that uh, philosophy of Vedanta is what Vivekananda emphasized. It's the sort of core universal teachings, what you might think of as a science of consciousness, if you, because they don't have to be seen. They were seen as religious teachings, but that's the way we frame them. And, you know, people could just as easily and many people do, East and West, see them as a science, you know, deep insights into the nature of human life and consciousness and, and our relation to the cosmos um, that can be tested like scientific hypotheses uh, in direct experience, and the direct experience comes in the teachings of yoga. So what he was teaching was the philosophy of Vedanta and the pathways of yoga, 
He was the first to, you know, many of your listeners will be familiar with bhakti yoga, karma yoga, jnana yoga, raja yoga. He, he wrote books or gave talks that turned into books on each of those four pathways of yoga. And he was the first to do that in, in English for the rest of us to learn from. So it was a combination of Vedanta and yoga philosophy and methodologies of yoga that he emphasized, not the rituals, not the ceremonial life, not the what you see. And if you go to India and you go to a, a temple, you won't necessarily, you might sometime hear somebody giving a discourse on Vedanta philosophy or something, but it's mostly uh, people chanting and people doing offerings to deities and, and that sort of thing. He knew that would be looked upon as some weird, crazy religion, and that was just not part of what he introduced. He introduced philosophical ideas that could hold up to rational thinking and inquiry and methods that um, later gurus, you know, uh, emphasized even more than he did uh, of inner transformation. And that's, you know, appealed very much to uh, spiritual seekers and just pragmatic Americans who just found something of value to be explored. That makes sense. Yes, totally. I mean, it's 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 so fascinating. He was that he you know he was in essence a pragmatist and and really was so um, aware uh, you know as you're saying of what could and could not be kind of you know digested by American culture and and, and you know thank goodness he did because he really did make such an impact. Right. So, and that's a, that's in a sense you could historically. Uh, you could say that kind of set the, the template because the gurus who came in the 20th century, the ones who became very famous, like Yogananda, mm -hmm. who's I'm now working on a biography of Yogananda. Oh, excellent. Probably the most famous of the, all the gurus because of the autobiography of a yogi. Yeah. So I'm writing his biography now, and it's incredible, you know, how he was very much in the same mold. He actually grew up a short walk from where Vivekananda grew up uh, at, in Calcutta and a generation later. And you see the pragmatism in his early work and, and you know, he, the work he, he, he kept up for 32 years in America, practical techniques, practical philosophy to apply to everyday life and uh, uh, teachings that could be adapted to any way of life, whether you're in a village in India or, you know, New York or L.A., uh, living a, in a householder life and running a business or whatever. And all the subsequent gurus, the ones of the 60s, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and Muktananda and Satchinananda, they all followed that same template mm -hmm. of, of adapting teachings in a way that would be appropriate to the, to the Western audience. Mm. So let me ask you a question, actually, about Yogananda. I hadn't really intended to, add, to talk about this, but it, I, I, now that you've been studying this, I bet you have some insightful things to say. So in, autobiograph in Autobiography of a Yogi, as many people know who've read it, there's a lot of magic. And <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of r things that, you know, to us kind of materialist Westerners, it's hard to... It's hard to imagine that they could be true. So I guess I, my curiosity is, was he intending was he intending something to be read metaphorically? Is there kind of a a, a, a subtle you know? Is there kind of a, a um, 
um, uh, a, a subtle boundary between like what is magical and what is real that you have to be in a certain kind of spiritual um, place to grasp. I mean, what was the kind of what was his intention there? Was he meaning to to offer facts or was he meaning to offer something that kind of like was in this strange place between magical realism and realism? Well, it's fascinating you should bring this up today because just yesterday I had a long conversation about this with uh, one of the monastics at the Self-Realization Fellowship who, mm. uh, you know, represents Yogananda's teaching. And um, so it's a, it's a nuanced answer. Mm-hmm. Um, one, no, I don't think he meant them metaphorically. Mm. He, the, he was describing experiences he had and that were reported to him that occurred to, you know, other yogis. Um, why did he include so many? I think partly because to him, these, what we think of as miraculous occurrences, superpowers of yogis and mm. so forth, um, they're dramatic. You know, people have argued for millennia whether Jesus actually performed miracles. And if he were capable of those miracles, why did he do them? And because he famously said, oh, you're, you generation, you need to see signs and miracles. And, you know, Yogananda quoted that at the beginning of the autobiography of a yogi. He quotes that passage from the New Testament. And I think he was saying, hey, you'll, you're not going to pay attention unless I, t- <laughs> I give you something really interesting and dramatic yeah. if, it's, if it was just philosophy. Uh, but there, the point, I think, to a lot of that, and there are two kinds of people who love the autobiography of a yogi, people who love it because of all that stuff and people who love it despite, despite all, of that, all stuff. Of that stuff. Right. They don't, they don't believe it. They don't care about it. You know, it's a distraction. But they, they go right for the rest of the st- book, which is wonderful stories about his own experiences, his own life, but a lot of important philosophical ideas about yoga and Indian philosophy and deep insights into the nature of life. Mm -hmm. That's why people love the book and the miracles and the fascinating yogic uh, powers and so forth. um, They can either be a distraction or demonstrations that some of the core ideas of yoga about the power of consciousness and the supremacy of the mind with respect to the body um, are actually true. Because look, really advanced yogis can do this. And you, even you, can do these practices and improve the power of your mind and the, 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 the power of your mind to influence your body for the better and to manifest in your life the things you want to achieve and so forth. If people can, you know, fly and materialize things and all this other stuff, uh, along, you know, there are, there are even for you ordinary yogis, <laughs> you know, there's something there. Yeah. So, and you can, you can directly contact this higher power, this higher intelligence, the, you know, the power of 
the cosmos, the, the power of the of God or God consciousness, and absorb that and energize your own life and your own mind and so forth. So they were dramatic ways of making that point. Yeah. And I would think that would have been his rationale for including it. Right. It's almost like they're an invitation to expand our understanding of what is real and what is possible. That That's right. In order to, you know, in order to move to become more expansive in this practice, you really have to entertain the possibility that what your conception of reality delimits might be very narrow. Quite good. Quite yeah. right. Quite yeah. right. So, so um, I mean, he would even in some of his uh, lectures, he wouldn't just lecture, he would do certain little demonstrations of of uh, mental powers. Mm. Uh, and that gets people's attention. Yeah, sure does. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, let's move into, um, we've been throwing around this word, um, you know, Hinduism a lot, and many of the <laughs> listeners will be familiar with it, and maybe it's not problematic to them. But I wanted to maybe ha let you kind of explore what that word is. It's actually, you know, uh, a more contemporary word, as we know, so, so, or more modern. So I'm wondering if you can kind of explore yeah. what Hinduism is and how it's often misunderstood. Well, it, it's a problem. At, it's a problem in this world of, you know, yoga and practical yoga and practical applications of Vedanta and Indian philosophy. Where does Hinduism begin and end? And is yoga Hindu and all this? And it's it's so complicated. And people come down on different sides of it depending on their own point of view and you know their own backgrounds. But. Uh, you know, in India, there's there's people who don't even like the term Hindu. Mm. You know, they are what we would call Hindus. They're born to it, but you know, it's they don't like it because it's a, it's essentially an invention of uh, colonial powers. Yeah. You know, the the word Hindu derives uh, from the Persian, the Persians who came from what's now Iran into India. And they, they called the people who lived on the other side of the Indus River Hindus. It, mm. it was a kind of, the H sound came into it at some point. But, you know, that's who they were. And the, the, the Brits, you know, for thousands of years, the Indian spiritual tradition was known as Sanatana Dharma, mm. meaning, meaning the eternal way, the eternal... Uh, tradition, the eternal teachings. Um, and it's incredibly diverse. You know, somebody once called Hinduism the world's most disorganized religion. Uh, <laughs> if, you know, if you go to India, depending on what village you're in and, you know, what part of India you're from, it's, you know, different expressions and manifestations of Hinduism. And it makes, you know, the diversity within, you know, the Christian tradition look uniform by comparison. It's so diverse. And, and so all these teachings that stem essentially from the, the, the Vedas thousands of years ago, you know, as time evolved and, you know, different parts of the country, different climates, different cultural traditions, it, it took on different forms. Mm. And the Brits wanting something because, you know, the West, we have to categorize everything. And, you know, so they saw what looked like to them as religious 
practices, and they wanted to classify it, and they called it Hinduism, mm -hmm. you know, for the Hindus. It's the religion practiced by the people called Hindus. Uh, and um, so it got all lumped together, and all these Indic you know, tra tra traditions from India became known as Hinduism. And, you know, the people who followed the teachings that stem from the Buddhist uh, reform uh, of the time of, of the Buddha, you know, they're Buddhists. And um, so it has a modern um, sort of overlay of how the West categorizes religion. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people find it very uh, misleading to think of Hinduism as a one of the you know world, world religions, religions. Mm -hmm. and to use kind of religious categories and the way we uh, understand religion in the West and to impose that on traditions in Asia like that we call Hinduism and Buddhism uh, is often a, Inaccurate. It's, you know, a round peg in a square hole kind of thing. Yeah. So it leads to a lot of misunderstanding about what Hinduism is and what it's not. And it, it overlooks the, the tremendous diversity within it. All that said, you know, if there is something called Hinduism, and many Indian Hindus embrace the term, they say, hey, you know, this is what it's called. So we'll embrace it and we'll make just, you know, educate people about what it is. Um, the way it's practiced in India, in all its diversity, is, is and the way it, it is often practiced now with Hindu Americans, because now we have, uh, you know, since the 60s, a, 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 a gradual increase in the Hindu population, meaning Hindus of Indian descent living in America, mm -hmm. and now first and second generation American born, and they've opened up temples, uh, just as Jews, Jews built synagogues in the you know a hundred years ago, and Catholics built the Catholic churches. So there's now Hindu temples here, where what is practiced is very similar to what is practice in ordinary life in India. Uh, but the yoga world and the world of meditation and the gurus who came, um, they're, you could say, uh, a derivation of a Hindu tradition uh, adapted to American life, if you like. Or, But, but the, 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 the essence of these teachings is you don't have to see them in religious terms. You mm -hmm. can see them in psychological terms. Mm -hmm. You can see them as philosophical systems. You could be a total secularist atheist and benefit from the practices of yoga and the, you know, get uh, insight from the philosophy we think of as Hinduism, but could be understood as, as a, a philosophical system. Yeah. So yeah. it gets a little complicated because we think of religion in a certain box mm -hmm. and, you know, things like yoga and, and philosophy in different boxes. But Yeah, it's so interesting, and I'm so glad you brought that up of this concept, you know, this category of religion and how it distorts, you know, the things that we kind of projected upon. And, I, and, and immediately when you said that, it sort of came to my mind um, uh, 
Buddhism. I mean, when I grew up, growing up, I, I had a you know class. I went to Christian school. My parents put me through Christian school, and we had a you know class of other religions. And and Buddhism, we like studied it in this very you know narrow way. And like, and the Buddha was purported to be a god. But of course, if you know anything about Buddhism, you know it's right. not a theistic. Right tradition exactly. so right, so it's right. just it's so interesting how you know by projecting that category upon different traditions we distort them in terms of this you know vision of things that is very specific to our own historical context um, that's right yeah that's right and 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 so we think of religion as faith traditions we yeah. call them faith tradition well faith isn't that important in hinduism or buddhism it's direct experience there's always a certain amount of faith but Faith is not what's emphasized. Yeah. What's emphasized is one's own inner personal you know, relationship to the divine. Mm-hmm. And that's the essence of yoga. And um, so, but, you know, that we have these ways of explaining it. And it leads to crazy situations like uh, Hindus wanting to, you know, proudly uh, have it recognized that yoga in all of its, you know, popularity and practical benefits is part of their tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have fundamentalist Christians who think yoga is the work of the devil. <laughs> and, it, and it's the, it's, it's a sneaky way of, of imposing Hinduism on you. Um, and they prove it by quoting Hindus who say, yes, yoga is part of our tradition. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't be further apart in real life, but, you know, <laughs> So, you know, there it is. It, it gets very confusing. Yeah, it certainly does. But, I'm glad but to... as, I've, as I'm very fond of saying, um, one of the great glories of yoga in this, the larger sense of the word, capital Y yoga, is it can mean many things to many people. Mm-hmm. And so it could be a secular thing. It could be a medical thing. It could be a psychological thing. It could be a physical exercise. It could be a deep a spiritual thing uh, or a religious thing and they're all it's all true yeah. and and the downside of something being that universal and that versatile is you know people get confused by what to how to label it if you need to label it something yeah yeah mm. so I, I have a question now that is um, it's one of it's going to be probably one of our final questions and, and it's I want to explore something a bit more um, uh, maybe political which you know I was listening to your Spirit Matters podcast which is a, a, as we mentioned at the beginning is a, is a wonderful resource wonderful podcast you interview some incredible speakers and in one of your interviews you um, discuss with your interviewee the the topic of um, of of how these practices and this tradition and these teachings are are sitting comfortably or uncomfortably as it is in in some contexts in India itself and i feel like we have this you know a lot of us who maybe who have not been to india or don't know much about india have this kind of imaginary imaginary or fantasy that you know the the most comfortable home for these teachings is in india and it, the, these teachings are beloved and there's you know there's a, an incredible amount of support for um, the propagation of these teachings and i learned from this podcast that this is actually not true and and the the relationship to these teachings within india is actually very diverse and very and in some in some ways controversial. So I would love for you to kind of explore that because I think it's going to be news to a lot of people. 
you're, I'm glad you gave us plenty of time for this because you're asking great questions that beg for long, nuanced answers. India is a really complicated place. Mm -hmm. It's you know the world's biggest uh, d democracy. It's very diverse, very complicated, very chaotic in the midst of tremendous change as it modernizes and still, you know, only uh, 60, 70 years after gaining independence, after hundreds of years of, of colonialism. So, there, you know, there's a lot going on there. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, spiritual teachings have a way of uh, getting lost and revived over the centuries, just as I don't think many people uh, would think that modern Christianity is exactly what Christ taught. Right. You know, <laughs> and, you know, far from it. So, you know, things get distorted, things get diminished, things get changed, or things fail to adapt to, to you know, cultural changes as, as the world uh, evolves. And so Hinduism is, in many ways, in India, um, these the practical aspect of, of the Vedantic and yogic uh, pathways um, kind of got lost mm -hmm. in the shuffle of, of all the, the uh, challenges India has had and the, the occupation by Christian and Muslim uh, forces. Um, and actually, when you think of it, it's it's pretty amazing that it stayed alive as well as it did to the point where even 200 years ago, in the middle of the British Empire, uh, it could have find its these teachings could find their way halfway around the world to America and influence people like Emerson and Thoreau, mm -hmm. and then all of the rest of us over the course of 200 years. So they stayed alive uh, in certain circles, mm -hmm. intellectual and spiritual circles in the monasteries, in the ashrams, in the guru-centered world, but in a different way in everyday life. And so, and the teachings of Hatha Yoga, the physical practices, were at a certain point, you know, 180, 100 years ago, denigrated. And, um, and the mystical teachings uh, that we are now so enamored of and, and finding such great value in, many of them, uh, after independence, were uh, denigrated as by secularists who just wanted to modernize the country, uh, many of whom had a sort of Marxist orientation to life of, of materialist uh, outlook, wanting to improve uh, conditions for the masses and improve the economy. And in their eyes— religion and, you know, these superstitious teachings were old-fashioned, antiquated, and uh, of no value. They were holding people back. They were being complacent because, you know, they, they, were, they, they, they fed complacency rather than energized activism to modernize the country and change the economy and so forth. So it wasn't just that teachings were ignored in many cases, you know, by certain intellectual elites and so forth, they were denigrated. Mm. So with all that, they still stayed alive in many circles. And then an interesting thing happened. And a lot of the uh, 
gurus who came here foresaw that this would happen. When they, these teachings, especially the pragmatic methods of meditation and yoga, were um, sort of validated by Western science, that's something we haven't talked about yet, but one of the things that happened as a result of the counterculture uh, boom uh, in the 60s and 70s was people got very curious about meditation and yoga and started studying what goes on. So by now we have thousands of studies validating the efficacy of these teachings on the body and the mind and the emotions and psycho psychology. And that reverberates back to India as a signal that their ancient teachings have proven value to modern life. Mm. And so uh, you now see uh, more and more yoga studios and yoga academies and yoga research centers. Uh, and um, uh, as the teachings get adapted to the modern way. So you have both things going on, tremendous pride and a tremendous revival of these teachings, by, especially with certain uh, modern gurus like Sri Sri Ravi Shankar and Amma and others who are not known in the West but are very well known in India, uh, bringing the teachings into a modern world, uh, much the way we've adapted them to our modern way of life. So you have that going on. You have the scientific evidence uh, supporting all that. And at the same time, you have these secularists and, you know, sort of politically minded people uh, who are, uh, have allergic reactions to anything that might resemble antiquity mm. or, or religion, you know. The, you know, we have the same thing in the West, but it's more dramatic in India, you know, because— uh, they have so many. They're facing so many uh, problems, and and in this drive to modernize, uh, they, these I, these uh, controversies become um, very dramatic. I think this is such a, a fascinating and interesting point because what I hear you saying is. Um, uh, there, I've encountered, you know, fairly recently as I've began this project, some kind of contemporary anti-colonialist individuals who who like to kind of um, denigrate the the Western appropriation yes. of yoga and the Indian tradition by, yes. by saying that we're kind of destroying the culture. But what I hear you saying is actually that in a certain from a certain perspective, the appropriation by a Western audience has actually um, supported the the integrity of the teachings by sending a message sort of back to India that these teachings are worth supporting. Is that, that is that, that correct? That, that's one thing that's going on, mm -hmm. but I don't, I don't want to dismiss the concerns of people who are concerned about cultural appropriation. It's sure. very real. Yeah, it's very sure. real. It's very denigrating to Indians and Hindus that, you know, these precious spiritual teachings, even Hatha yoga, even the asanas, are being denigrated and commercialized and trivialized mm -hmm. as, you know, yoga, chocolate-tasting yoga festivals and, you know, uh, and naked, <laughs> and, you know, naked yoga and, yeah. you know, wine and yoga, and yoga yeah. as, a, as a kind of uh, uh, just a, a, a slightly calmer form of, you know, aerobic exercise. So right. that that is demeaning, and yeah. it is... And, you know, as we said before, the danger is uh, that you don't appreciate the fullness of what yoga is. But if you're Indian, 
if you're Hindu, it's more than just um, uh, unfortunate. It, it's, it's, it feels denigrating, mm -hmm. and it feels like these people are stealing our traditions and uh, making a mockery of them. Yeah. So that's very real. Yeah. But at the same time, there's many Americans who venerate the Indian tradition, and their entree into yoga and meditation has created, you know, I, I, do, I lead tours to India, mm -hmm. you know, American Veda tours, and, you know, people love India. People love it to the point of romanticizing it. Yeah. And, you know, uh, so both things go on. It's not, you know, it's not one-dimensional. Mm -hmm. um, and as you say, you know, India, you know, there are segments of Indian society that denigrate these teachings uh, as well. So, and, and there's a, a fine line to be drawn between what, you know, is inappropriate appropriation, so to speak, you know, um, and just adapting these teachings to our way of life. Yeah. You know, as I often say, you know, Indians take stuff from America too. You know, they, they adapted uh, the technology of cinema and created Bollywood. Right. You know, they, they didn't just remake Casablanca. They, <laughs> yeah. you know, they, they do their own thing with our technology. So in a sense, many people who practice yoga and take up meditation see it as a form of uh, an imported technology that we can apply to our way of life, whether it's in, in medical care or, you know, psychotherapy or physical fitness. And they don't see it as cultural appropriation. They see it as just at and a form of adaptation. Yeah. And and it's not, you know it's not easy to distinguish those things. And the other it gets even more complicated. It's not as if people went to India and stole the yoga and brought it back. <laughs> you know, it's the, it came here as an offering from India by, you know, venerated gurus like Vivekananda and Yogananda, you know, it was their gift to us essentially they brought it here and they themselves adapted it to western life mm. and set the template for that so it gets really complicated yeah um, I, I like the distinct i like the distinction that you draw um i don't think i've ever heard the distinct this distinction between adaptation and appropriation and i think that's kind of a useful conceptual distinction to kind of start to tease out you know what is obviously very complicated and and controversial issue. I'm curious. Yeah. I'm curious, though. In I, I myself haven't been to India. I hope to go this next year, actually. Um, but I'm curious what the general reception is of white people in India. Basically, like, is huh. are Indians annoyed by the kind of you know the spiritual seekers of the yoga, West? yoga, yoga tourism? Yeah. Um, it depends. Mm -hmm. Yes, some people are annoyed and offended, especially if you're walking around in short shorts and, you know, sleeveless shirts. Right. Um, or not not being appropriate in their culture mm -hmm. um, and respectful. Um, and some just are very cynical about, the, you know, yogis coming there to go to Rishikesh and sit with gurus and all that. Uh, but others are tremendously honored. Mm. by this interest in in people from other cultures who come to India for spiritual illumination and um, self-improvement uh, uh, and who come with a sense of deep respect and reverence and curiosity 
and so forth. I led a tour to North India last year. I'm leading one to South India next year. Um, I don't mean last year. I mean just a few months ago. Mm. And, you know, we were 20-some-odd people, grown-ups, and, and everybody there had a great love for India, great curiosity for India. Some, Most of them were there for the first time. And we were treated with great respect and, and great welcoming. The Indian people, the Hindu culture has a saying, the guest is God. And, you know, we were guests in their country, and we were treated with incredible graciousness and hospitality and and so forth so and and we were very welcome in ashrams and temples because we had we were sincere mm -hmm. and um and so you know other people might look at a group of of tourists and and you know people heading to a temple or an ashram and think oh you know they're just curiosity seekers they don't appreciate us and they're but, and then, of course, then there's people who just love it because we're bringing tourist money into the country. Right, right. You know, and they're they're feeding their children because, you know, we're buying, uh, you know, Raksha beads or, uh, you know, a, a shawl. And, and so, you know, there's a range of reaction. Hmm. So let's, yeah, so let's, let's. Uh, we are starting to get towards the end of our, our conversation together. This has been so mm -hmm. fascinating. But I wanted to end on um, uh, a topic that I read in your more extended bio of, and I think, of course, we've been sort of talking around it or uh, without kind of naming it, but um, but this idea of pragmatic mysticism, what, mm -hmm. is, what is it and how does it differ from maybe, you know, a traditional approach or thought idea of, of mysticism? Well, I think mysticism, as if you really understand what it is, um, you know, I remember um, reading a book about mysticism back when I first was exploring this stuff. I, you know, I read all this Indian philosophy, and that led me to a book about mysticism. And I remember looking up from the book and saying to my roommate, why do they call this mysticism? It seems very practical to me. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, mysticism has this connotation of woo-woo, you know, mystified, mysterious, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, the, you know, what it really means for people who, you know, take the, these mystical traditions seriously is every religious, what we call religious tradition, every spiritual tradition has what some scholars would call an exoteric side of it and an esoteric side of it. Mm -hmm. Exo meaning external. Mm -hmm. So the rituals, the belief system, the traditions, that's the external. But the esoteric part is the inner practices, the inner experiences. And that esoteric part was maintained in the East and is predominant in the East, which is why we took to them so much because they were kind of lost to the West. So practices like meditation and chanting and uh, the, the deeper contemplative parts of yoga, um, those are esoteric traditions meant to transform the person from the inside and change the nature, the state of consciousness, mm. to connect the person with the vast mystery, you could say, of um, the cosmos. And that's what the essence of mystic 
mysticism is, and there's a mystical component to every religious tradition. You know, Jews had Kabbalah, Christians had the Christian mystics, St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, contemplative Christianity. Uh, Islam had Sufis. And, and the Hindus and Buddhists, it was more in the forefront. Yeah. And, and so um, that's what mysticism means. And, the, you know, scholars have found that the mystics of all the traditions are pointing to the same or very similar truths mm-hmm. and the deep experiences they convey to us and teach us to have ourselves um, have a commonality mm-hmm. of this uh, union with something div- great and big and beautiful that we call divine. And that's the essence of yoga. So yoga is is a pragmatic mysticism because it its whole nature is to give us practic on a practical level this deep inner transformation. Mm. And that's that's what the great mystical tradition should do. So in a sense, you could say pragmatic mysticism is a redundancy, but yeah. since it has it has that esoteric, you know, sort of woo-woo connotation, I just sometimes use the word pragmatic mysticism to emphasize that that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in, you know, the, you know, boots on the ground, how does it change your life right. aspect. Right. I, it's a, it sort of reminds me of the name of this project, Embodied Philosophy, which to me is is a little mm-hmm. bit of an, you know, it's a it's a redundancy because, you know, to me, the original meaning of philosophy, love of wisdom, has to be embodied in order to be wisdom. So, you know, it's it's sort of interesting. And I and I hear you. It's like the, the mysticism is often, you know, associated with something sort of exactly woo woo, like tra- transcendent to the world and not and not realizable. But what you're really saying is that it inherently is pragmatic if we're understanding it correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that's my take on it, indeed. And you know, this whole phenomenon that's so big in in the in the current uh, landscape of being spiritual but not religious, which is probably a term you'd apply to yourself, if if I'm guessing correctly. Um, I think you know that would be unthinkable without the advent of all these. T- uh, methods and teachings that came to us from the East. Yeah. It's given people a way to have a genuine, authentic, inner spiritual life without necessarily uh, pledging allegiance to a particular religion or having to uh, accept all the religious dogma. Mm-hmm. And um, in a sense, people who are spiritual but not religious are pragmatic mystics. Mm-hmm. If they have a, if they have a meditation practice or yoga practice, that's what that's what they are. Mm. Wonderful! Wow, that's a that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Philip. This has been such a an, an amazing conversation. Um, I just wanted to close with giving you an opportunity to kind of talk a little bit about your upcoming projects, where people can mm-hmm. find you, and uh, anything else you want to share. Well, they can find me at uh, philipgoldberg.com. That's Philip with one L. Mm-hmm. Uh, philipgoldberg.com. There's a, also a website for um, uh, American Veda, AmericanVeda.com, if they want to know more about that book. All my other books, like Road Signs on the Spiritual Path and others, are mentioned on my website. Um, I also, as I said, I'm now working on a biography of Yogananda that will be out in 
sometime in 2018, so stay tuned. All right. Um, you'll also find on my website a link to American Veda Tours. Mm. Uh, we started that company to bring people to India um, with an emphasis on places associated with the main gurus who came here. Mm. And um, so we just had our uh, tour to the north, and then next year we'll be going to the south of India for three weeks. And uh, uh, as you said, uh, I co-host a podcast called Spirit Matters uh, at spiritmatterstalk.com. And you can download it from iTunes as well um, as a podcast. And, you know, we interview spiritual teachers and leaders, uh, occasionally a scholar or a scientist, um, on a, the, the, the vast array of spirituality that's uh, now accessible to us. And we've had some really wonderful guests. Yes. Um, and uh, so I would... Uh, send people in that direction as well. Yeah, and yeah. and I, I also, you know, I do talks and stuff, although I've, I've scaled back on my travels because I have a book to write, uh, but um, they can see my schedule on my website. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much, Philip. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. My pleasure indeed, Jacob. Lovely to talk to you. All right. So I'll, I'll speak to you soon. Have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Philip Goldberg. If you'd like to hear more about Philip and his offerings, you can check out his website. It's philipgoldberg.com and then also americanveda.com. And as usual, if you enjoy what you hear, our, our podcast interviews, we'd so appreciate it if you'd leave us a review on iTunes, which you can do via the iTunes app in your smartphone, iPhone, whatever you have. Thanks so much, and until next time, friends, bye-bye.